Yeah. We're going to continue in this series we've been in. We're in Matthew 27. If you want to find that passage, Matthew 27, we'll be reading verses 45 and 46. Very short passage. If you've been with us, you know we've been uh, walking through the, the seven last words of Christ from the cross. And this week we're in, in Matthew. This is verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Leme Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word of the Lord. Yeah, there are certain passages where it's always harder to say that, isn't it? Um, when a passage ends that way. And if you've, you've been around uh, the last couple of weeks, you know we've been walking through this uh, just piece by piece. And uh, last week we talked about Jesus' last words to his mother. It's this incredibly intimate conversation between Jesus and Mary. And yet this week there's an even more intimate conversation that's taking place. Like this is deeply personal uh, and, and really painful for Jesus. This is a conversation he's, he's sharing with the Father, speaking directly to God. Um, and, and these words are especially important because this is a, an anguished moment, a, a rare moment of, of despair for Jesus. You don't see Jesus in this sort of state very often, and it's really important for us to see him this way. You can see the, the humanity of Jesus on display. It's clear that Jesus is feeling what you and I have so often felt. Like We know that experience of despair. We know the experience of pain and suffering. But these words are, are unique for another reason, because Matthew and Mark as well they choose to do something curious. They record part of this in Aramaic. And it's, it's an interesting thing that they're choosing to do. He only does that one other time in this gospel. One other time. And it's a pretty insignificant thing. It's just one word that Jesus uses in a conversation. So... In effect, this is, this is really the only time in Matthew's gospel we're seeing Aramaic like this. And these few words in Aramaic are the only words that you will see from Jesus on the cross in the gospel of Matthew. Now, if you know, the, the di different gospel narratives show different things happening. In Luke, we see one thing. In John, we see another. In Matthew and Mark, we see something else. But all of this is important. In Matthew's telling of the crucifixion, we don't hear anything but this one short sentence from Jesus, and Matthew chooses to record it in Aramaic. All of that seems to say we need to be paying attention to what's happening here. This is significant, what we're seeing right here. It's like Matthew is drawing attention to these words. They're not just important because it's Jesus in a moment of anguish and despair. They're important because Matthew wants us to see something in the midst of that anguish and despair. And, and the question you find yourself asking 
throughout this passage. Every time you come to it, no matter how many times you've read it, again and again you're asking, why? Right alongside Jesus, we're asking why. And even in simple ways, like well, why does Matthew choose to use Aramaic here? Especially considering the man is about to tell us in Greek exactly what it means. He's been writing in Greek the entire time, right? He's about to translate it into Greek so that his audience can understand exactly what he's saying. And yet, he's bothering with Aramaic. Why? Why do this? And it, it makes me think of uh, my friends who are bilingual. I don't know how many friends you have who are bilingual over the years. I grew up with a lot of kids that were bilingual um, whose family spoke both Spanish and English. It made me think of uh, one of the kids Eli used to play baseball with. He came from a family that uh, was bilingual. Uh, his dad had grown up in a family where they all spoke Spanish. He had learned English and spoke incredibly well. Uh, his son, like most young kids in the U.S., he was speaking English most of the time. And if you ever saw them at baseball practice, both of them would be speaking English the majority of the time. You very rarely heard them speak Spanish. But every once in a while, I would notice that if this kid did something especially well, if he did something like maybe he, he scores a run or he gets a, a good hit, he makes a good play, whatever it is, normally his dad would say in English, you know, good job, bud, if it was something simple. But if he did something special, something different, that he wanted to draw attention, he'd say something like, way to go, mijo, every time. Way to go, my boy, my son. It's like he knew that saying it that, that certain way allowed his son to feel it, the weight of what he was saying. He would hear it and receive it differently if he spoke it that way. He knew that language spoke something else. It was more intimate, right? And Matthew knows the same thing is the case for us. He knows the same thing is true. Like, that when we're hearing this different language, it kind of sets things up a little bit differently. That's exactly what he's doing. Aramaic was the language of Jesus. Hebrew is the written language of the scriptures that Jesus grew up with. Aramaic is the language that he picked up, that all of his people had picked up, especially uh, from Babylon. Aramaic became the language of the Jewish people. And Matthew knows that his readers are Jewish people. He knows when he, he uses those words, it means something different to them. It speaks differently to them. And even somebody, I, I always thought, even somebody who didn't know Spanish, who was listening to that man say that to his child, even one who, who doesn't know what that word means, could feel what he was saying could feel that there was, there was an intimacy there. And even though we don't understand Aramaic, we can kind of feel that there's something about this that he's saying. We may not understand Aramaic, but the point is not for us to understand. The point is for us to feel it. That's what Matthew's trying to do here. The point is not to understand it, but to feel it. See, if you think about it, that's really kind of encapsulates the whole passage. There's a lot about what's happening here at the cross that you're not going to understand. It's not about understanding it. It's about feeling it. That's what Matthew wants you to get, to, to feel what's happening in this moment. And it kind of reminds us that ultimately, coming to this passage, the hope is not that we're going to understand suffering. That probably won't happen. You're not going to understand suffering when you read this passage over and over again. You may never understand it. 
It's not about understanding suffering. It's about feeling Jesus' pain in this moment and coming to, to recognize what's really happening here. Matthew wants you to hear Jesus' final moments in his own words, the way he said it, not just a translation. And I think that may be the only way we can feel it rightly, to really hear Jesus as he says something, to go there with Jesus and to experience the, the dreadful beauty of the cross. That's the only way you can get there. And as you really begin to feel that moment of suffering and despair, you begin to recognize something. You, you recognize in Jesus' despair and suffering your own despair and suffering. You begin to recognize how relatable, how human all of this really is. And as you recognize your own despair and his despair, you realize God is not just redeeming his suffering and his despair. He's redeeming mine as well. I may not understand it, but I know God is redeeming it. That's the point. Matthew is trying to get us to, to feel this and recognize something more here. And since Matthew really wants you to be able to experience this, this moment of the, the crucifixion, he, he kind of explains every detail. I don't know if you noticed. We only read three verses. It's a pretty short passage. And yet, he says a lot in a little bit of time. Like He's including a lot of detail here. He tells us the weather. He tells us what time it is twice. He tells us really the sound of Jesus' voice. He's communicating something to us. Like when he says it was 12 o'clock. And he tells us that at 12 o'clock there was darkness over the whole land. He's getting at something, right? The sun at its highest point, the heat at its most intense normally in Jerusalem. It's noon. And yet darkness covers the land. He's trying to help you see something. He wants you to recognize just how heavy this moment was. It was dark even then at the middle of the day. The whole earth is shrouded in darkness, he says. And that's no small detail. The darkness is, is, is pregnant with meaning. There's a lot happening here. The darkness reveals the heart of the Father in this moment. We're not just seeing what's going on with Jesus. We're seeing something larger that's happening. All of creation is, is shrouded in darkness, and it reveals the heart of God himself. We're not the only ones mourning this moment. God himself seems to be mourning. Matthew wants you to see that. Creation itself is mourning. It goes dark, black. Because creation is seeing its very creator suffer for a crime he did not commit. Creation itself is mourning. And, and if you think about it, it was kind of always that way. Creation had always mourned. It happened in Genesis 3. Remember, one of the first things we see when sin enters the story of humanity, the first thing we hear is that the ground was cursed. Creation has always felt the sting of sin. And now it feels it more than ever. Creation is mourning. Creation itself. Because the one who knew no sin has become sin, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. It makes me think of, of Romans 8, right? It, like, it really gives meaning to Romans 8. 
Paul says, all of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. All creation is groaning for the same thing that we are. We're longing for the promise that God has made to be fulfilled. We're longing for the kingdom to come in its fullness. We're longing for all things to be made new. And Paul says, all of creation groans with us. And you're seeing that in real time here. In the middle of the day, everything goes black. The earth has always felt the sting of it, but now more so than ever, right? And then Matthew goes on to say, at 3 o'clock, Jesus finally spoke. He finally says something. And that's no small detail either, especially to the people who are reading it. Like, we read that and just go, like, like, he's just recording time. He's just telling us how this all played out, how long Jesus was on the cross, maybe. And I think that, that's true. But there's, there's more there, right? Remember, again, Matthew's writing to Jewish people who know the Jewish tradition inside out. And he's telling them a story of a man who was crucified on the Passover. And he says, at 3 o'clock, Jesus spoke up. 3 o'clock was the time that they traditionally brought the Passover lamb into the temple to be sacrificed. It's not a small detail. It's like Jesus is, is trying not to tell you, excuse me, Matthew is trying to tell you not just how long Jesus was on the cross, how this all played out in time. He's trying to help you see who Jesus really is. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Passover Lamb who's been brought in. He is the once-for-all sacrifice, as the author of Hebrews says. And through his sacrifice, our, our, our sins are all washed away. We're clothed in righteousness. We've been forgiven. He wants you to see all of this. He wants you to understand that is what's really happening. This is not just some ordinary man being crucified by Rome for a political crime. This is more than that. This is not a murder. It's not an execution. It's not a political hit. It's more than that. This is a sacrifice. And Jesus is choosing this. Jesus has chosen this. There's this amazing thing happening. Through his sacrifice, we are being clothed in righteousness, but Matthew wants you to see the dreadful cost at which all of that comes. He wants you to feel it. He wants you to recognize what's really happening. And you can hear it in Jesus' voice. The way Matthew writes, I mean, he wants you to hear Jesus he uses this emphasis in Greek. He says multiple different times. He, he lifted up his voice with a shout, right? He shouted loudly, he's saying. Like, I mean, there's, there's like a, a, a grit to this moment. You can hear the grit, the, the raw human emotion in Jesus. It's a thing we've experienced many times in our lives. We know that sound. We've heard it from somebody else. Maybe we've lifted up that kind of thing before. Maybe we've been in that kind of place. You can see it. But now it's, it's Jesus. It's on his lips. And I think that may be kind of disorienting, if we're honest. It may be a little disorienting for you to hear Jesus in that way. Because I don't know that we've always heard Jesus that way. If you have, have been taught or you've come, become accustomed to hearing Jesus like he's some heroic figure in this moment, Jesus the superhero... This shows us otherwise. Jesus is, is not heroic in this moment. Jesus is not that guy. He's not that figure here. 
And Matthew doesn't want you to see him that way. He wants you to see Jesus as human. He wants you to see Jesus as, as broken. This is not a moment of triumph. Jesus realizes he's really alone. He's by himself in this moment. And we think a lot about the pain of the cross in terms of, of physical pain. But we don't give enough attention to the emotional, psychological, spiritual sort of weight this places on Jesus. Jesus' body is not the only thing being crushed here, right? Like you're seeing here, Jesus' soul is crushed by the weight of the thing he's being asked to do. You can hear it. Matthew wants you to hear it and to feel it and to go there. And after you hear those words, after you kind of feel the anguish of that moment, Matthew then begins to tell you what it all means. These words in Aramaic may be unfamiliar to you, but then he explains, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you, of all people, you, God, have forsaken me? Why, he's saying. And you may or may not know where that comes from. You may not know that those aren't Jesus' original words. You may not know that that's, that's Psalm 22, but that's where it comes from. Psalm 22 may be familiar to you. Psalm 22 may just be the psalm that comes before Psalm 23, which we all love, right? But I think Matthew's kind of like drawing attention to something. Like, Psalm 22 is pretty good. Don't sleep on Psalm 22. This one's good as well. This one's important as well. He wants you to see that. But what's really important about all this, that Jesus would be uttering the Psalms from the cross. Again, you really see how much like us Jesus is. Jesus has his favorite songs too. Jesus memorized scripture as a kid too. He knows it inside out. And in this moment, he's uttering those Psalms, those childhood songs, like he's going back to that place and if you think about it, Psalm 22 had been around for a thousand years by the time Jesus was born. David had written it a thousand years prior. And the people of God had been saying this in moments of pain and suffering. I'm sure they uttered it when they were dragged off to Babylon to live in a foreign land, when they were stripped of everything that was meaningful to them. They probably uttered these words. And Jesus is just in a long line of people who are worshiping in this way. Hearing these words kind of reminds you of the significance of knowing Scripture. Like, that's not a small thing. That's not just something your grandparents taught you and you can kind of, like, move on from. Like, knowing and identifying with Scripture, uh, scripture allowing it to, to get inside you, internalizing Scripture, allowing it to be written on your heart. You begin to recognize the value of Scripture in this moment because Jesus himself is even leaning on Scripture in this kind of moment. And you will inevitably find yourself in a moment where you're asking why. And you'll need something to lean on. Jesus is, is leaning on Scripture in this moment. And the other thing it reminds us is that Jesus sees this moment of suffering in the context of worship. It's not some separate experience. He sees all of it as a part of how he is to worship. He's bringing his pain, his raw emotion into the presence of God in this moment. That's what's happening here. Matthew wants you to see it. He doesn't want you to miss it. And what's so really eye-opening about this moment of suffering 
is how you hear it. It's not some triumphant shout. Like, I think that's how we want to hear Jesus sometimes. Like, you know the story of Jesus in the wilderness? Jesus is uttering scripture there too, right? Satan throws, you know, a temptation at him and he speaks scripture. I don't know how you hear Jesus in that moment, but I think sometimes we want to, again, like we want to imagine Jesus as this heroic figure in the wilderness who's fighting off the devil. And we forget that he's been there for 40 days and that we've just been told that he's hungry, that he's weary. And I think Jesus is just raising a whisper. He's just barely getting these words out. I think the same thing is, is true here. This is not a triumphant shout. It's not a defiant cry at his murderers. That's what we want. That's not what we get. It's not a plea or a request to God. It's something different. It's a question. Jesus is asking a question. And Matthew wants you to know. Jesus had questions too. You have questions. Like we're all wrestling with questions of, uh, of some consequence. We all have these questions, and he wants you to see. Jesus wrestled with the painful why of human existence, right? We have all kinds of disciplines that can answer our what and the how, but very few disciplines that can help us answer the why of human existence. That's the quintessential human experience, if you think about it. That's something we all share in common. At some point, we have all asked why. I heard Dale Bruner say it really well. I think it's, it's really helpful. He says it this way. Jesus came not only giving us answers. He came asking our questions. Jesus has not just come to answer, to show us what the answers are. Jesus has come to ask our questions. So consider, Jesus' last words are from Psalm 22. And in that sense, they're an act of worship. They're just not the kind of worship that we're used to. Now, if you've read the Psalms, you've seen this kind of thing, right? Psalm 22 is one of a long list of psalms of, of lamentation, of, of mourning, right? Jesus is saying Psalm 22. This is, in that sense, an, an act of worship. But it, it's just foreign for us because we tend to worship in a different way. Like We, we want to kind of check that stuff at the door. We want to leave that outside of this. And this is supposed to be a joyful experience. I set aside all of that stuff to worship, right? That's what I'm supposed to do. So that way I can worship and I don't kind of shortchange God in this moment. God is good and so I'm going I'm to give him his in this moment. And the Jewish people just didn't do that. Like David just didn't do that. He brings all of that stuff in and Jesus is doing that right now. If you, if you read Psalm 22, David spends the vast majority of the time complaining. He's not whining. He's, he's raising a legitimate complaint with his circumstances. He feels surrounded, outnumbered, helpless. He has no help. He's alone, right? David is making known the heaviness that he feels. And here on the cross, Jesus too is raising a complaint. Jesus is, is asking a really painful and difficult question. He's complaining. He's not whining. He's raising a legitimate complaint. He's suffering something, and it's hard for him to understand. And it kind of opens your eyes to something, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe worship isn't about getting the answer to your questions. 
I think we get there so often. Like, like, like we're, we're coming to church and we're hoping, especially as we're going through really hard things, that somebody can answer our questions for us. Maybe God can, can answer this question for me. And that's what God becomes, is the person who can answer all of my questions. Maybe worship isn't about finding the answers to all of your questions or knowing the why of your suffering. Maybe worship ultimately is about a God who has stooped to ask those questions alongside you. A God who, who knows the questions, who feels them intimately, who groans alongside you. Like, I'm sure you've been in the experience of mourning. Like, surely you have. Like, surely you've been around somebody. And when they're asking those questions of why, the last thing they want to hear is a really eloquent answer to their question. Oh, thank you for drawing attention to that. I'd never thought about it that way. No, you don't want to hear that. You want somebody to ask the question with you and say, yeah, it's a good question. It's a painful question, and I don't understand it either. That's what you need, and it's exactly what we're finding in Jesus. That's the real gift a God who groans with you, who asks your questions with you, rather than just giving you an easy and quick answer. If you think about it earlier in Matthew, um, the disciples look at Jesus. They've seen John the Baptist and the cool ministry that he has going on, this thing baptizing people out in the wilderness. And John the Baptist has disciples as well, and he's teaching them how to pray. And the disciples are a bit jealous. They're like, well, Jesus, you haven't taught us to pray. Could you teach us to pray? Teach us, Lord. And he teaches them this very familiar prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven. It's beautiful. It's poetic. And then you see Jesus on the cross. And he's uttering a different kind of prayer. He's asking a question. It's a much more painful sort of prayer that you see. It's different. I, I read Will Willimon say this. Will Willimon was a, a Methodist bishop, actually, here in the Birmingham area for a long time. Uh, and a really, really gifted preacher. And this is what Will Willimon said. He says, here at the end, in the darkness, Jesus teaches us another prayer. Our Father, who art in hell. Jesus is teaching us a different prayer. Our Father, who art in hell. Jesus wants you to see it. Matthew wants to draw attention to it. God is close even in these hellish moments. You are not alone even in these hellish moments. God has not departed from you even in the depth of hell. He wants you to see that. It's a different kind of prayer on Jesus' lips. Jesus' question, and remember this is David's question originally, this why have you forsaken me? It's really important, and, and the, the word at the heart of it is that word forsaken, and that's the way we've always heard it, that's the way we always say it, and it's not to say it's like a bad translation or anything, that gets at the heart of it, but the Hebrew in the psalm and what Matthew's writing in Greek actually communicates something that I think is a little bit more clear to us, forsaken uh, is not quite as clear. In both Hebrew and Greek, it means something like abandonment, like being deserted, Jesus is saying, why have you abandoned me? Why have you deserted me? Why have you left me here alone? That's the, the sense that you get. And it made me think of, uh, of Paul. You know Paul's story. Paul, as an apostle, experiences all kinds of terrible things, and he'll list them out for you, what he's been through. And there's this one thing that he, that he shares in a, a kind of an intimate moment with Timothy. It's in his second letter to Timothy, and he just says it very quickly. But if you read it and you pay attention, you get the sense that, like, Paul is writing this as somebody who's still kind of wounded by it. 
He tells us about this, this friend, an apostle, a, a fellow worker with him. Somebody who committed to the same thing he committed to. This guy named Demas. And he says, Demas deserted him because he loved the present world. That's all he says. He doesn't tell you anymore. He just mentions that he was deserted. He was abandoned. And he just reminds us, right? Jesus was not excluded from abandonment. Paul is not excluded from the, the sense of abandonment, of, of being deserted. And the truth is, like, most people in the church are not excluded from it either. Even in the church, you're going to experience this sense of abandonment. Like, you're going to. I have felt it, this sense of, I feel a little bit deserted. I feel kind of like, like I'm just left. You're going to. And that's what, what Matthew wants you to see. You're not excluded from this. Paul is not excluded from this. Jesus is wrestling with that thing right now, that sense of abandonment, right? Jesus is in this place where not only have his disciples left him alone, not only have his closest friends left him alone, he's saying, God, why have you abandoned me? Like, think of the emphasis in that word, you. It's important. Why have you, of all of the rest of these, why have you abandoned me? Kind of helps you realize something. Like every child who's been abandoned, and there's a long list, right? We're increasingly aware of this, the abandonment that children feel. Every husband or wife who's been left behind, every friend who's been betrayed, Jesus identifies with all of it because in just a few short hours, he is betrayed and abandoned and deserted again and again. He's denied over and over again, right? He experiences this. He knows it well. Christ knows the experience. I was reading an interview of, uh, of Gardner Taylor. It's a Another pastor you may not be all that familiar with, but he was actually really central in the civil rights movement. He's an African-American pastor who was just kind of behind the scenes. Now, his nickname was, was the Dean of Preachers. And Gardner Taylor said in an interview, I thought it was really helpful, really speaks to this moment. He talked about the moments where he felt that, that abandonment, that sense of, of betrayal or alienation. He says, one cannot preach the gospel faithfully without including a certain alienation. One cannot preach the gospel faithfully without including a certain alienation. If you did, he says, it wouldn't be true to life. Right? Because in life there is alienation. That, that is a real thing and you're going to face it. In the church or not, you're going to face this painful experience. And though Jesus' life is, is marked by triumph, right? There are all these incredible, triumphant, miraculous moments where Jesus is overcoming things that no one thought could be overcome, right? Yet these final moments of his life are marked by abandonment, desertion, betrayal, a sense of alienation and loneliness. And I can't help but think, like so many of us, have always imagined that what it means to follow Jesus and to be a good Christian, and if we want the world to see Christianity in a positive light, then we need to be nice people. We need to be positive people. And I think that's something that's like infectious right now, right? We all need to be spreading our, our, our positive vibe everywhere we go. We all need to be eternally optimistic, and we need to let other people see it, right? 
People say, I'm praying for you, and praying for you sounds ridiculous, but people like the, the sound of sending positive thoughts, man. I'm sending those positive thoughts. Like, and we imagine, like, the church needs to be that. We need to be this, this eternal, positive voice all the time, optimistic. And the problem is, if the sun is always shining, right, if we're always giving people that sense, we're ultimately going to be losing touch with who Jesus actually is. That's not real life. And Jesus is experiencing real life. Like, that's what he's walking through. And Matthew doesn't want you to be in danger of losing hold of who Jesus actually is, of his actual experience. Jesus asks questions, and he doesn't get an answer, just like you have. But here's what you can't miss either. Jesus addresses his question this way. He says, just like David, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He's still talking the same way. My God. He doesn't say, God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't look at his murderers and say, why? Why has he forsaken me? He says, my God. He still sees this relationship in the same light. You are still mine and I still belong to you. My God. This is, this is the words on his lips. You're still mine. I'm not alone. I belong to you, right? Jesus goes to the grave assured of it. And it's like Matthew is telling us this story so that we can go to the grave assured of it. Whether our questions get answered or not. That's where he's taking us. And I can't help but think, I, 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 as I was reflecting on it this week, I couldn't help but think, if, if Jesus knows the first half of Psalm 22, surely he knows the last half. If he knows the beginning, surely he knows the end. The, the Jewish people, again, they don't have Bibles at their houses. They don't have Isaiah that they can just kind of pick up and read. It's not like that. They don't have the Psalms readily available to them. They have to internalize all of this. I can't help but think that Jesus must have known the rest of Psalm 22. We don't hear it from him on the cross, but I, I was sitting there reflecting on it this week. Like, It's fun to imagine Jesus and what it must have been like to get up on Sunday morning, right? Does, does Jesus get up with a song in his heart still? Does Jesus get up and finish the words of David? Does he get up and utter the rest of the song, right? I will declare your name among my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he is not despised or scorned the suffering of his afflicted one. He has not hid his face from him. But he has listened to his cry for help. Can you hear the, the words on Jesus' lips, right? Like, you get this sense that Jesus must have known the rest. There's this incredible tension in the story that Matthew's telling us. Jesus is asking really hard questions, and yet, it's still worship. He still sees it that way. And the table really holds that same tension for us. Every week, we come to the table, and there's this reminder, Jesus' broken body. 
the cost, the sacrifice that was made. Every week there's this reminder of Jesus' blood that has been shed that I might be clothed with righteousness, that I might know freedom, that I might know salvation. There's always this awareness of the cost, of the pain, the unanswered question. We're reminding ourselves of suffering. And yet Paul says at the same time, every time we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right? Until the promise is fulfilled. Every time we're doing this, we're reminding ourselves that the promise will ultimately be fulfilled. Every time we do this, we're one step closer to that, right? And you get this sense. Matthew wants you to see Jesus took our questions. He took our abandonment, our betrayal, our sense of, of loss and suffering. All that that we know so well. He took it all upon himself. And he was still singing. And as I was thinking about it this, this week, I, I, I just could not help but, but sense. This... The first verse of whatever song we're singing very often is painful. But the last verse is always triumphant. God is always moving us toward that. And don't be discouraged. Don't think that because you're singing this really painful tune that it will end that way. That's what the cross communicates to us. That's what resurrection communicates to us. God is doing something beautiful. As the band comes and we move back to worship, like if you find yourself in the middle of asking the question and you're getting no answer, if you find yourself reflecting on, on whatever old wound is, is still bothering you, whatever thing you're desperate for healing from, whatever it might be, whatever sense of betrayal or abandonment or whatever it might be, you can still sing. And it doesn't have to sound good. It can sound raw and painful. That's all right. There's something good about that. Jesus is teaching this from the cross. The first verse may be painful, but the last is always triumphant. Let God kind of move within you. Allow you to see what's, what's really happening in the cross. What Jesus is really doing in this moment and what he's inviting us into in the midst of the difficulty and the pain that we face. Father, as we come now to your table, would you make us ready to receive? If we come with painful questions, God, remind us that we may not always get answers, God, but what we will find is solidarity. What we will find is the peace of knowing that you are right there alongside us. As we kneel in the dirt, God, you are right there alongside us. As we utter our why, you, you utter it alongside us. Yeah, grant us peace, grant us freedom in knowing that, and stir us to worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the body of Christ, broken for you. So take and eat. And this is the blood of Christ poured out for the sins of many. Take and drink. 